0: The, one. the package being delivered. A heat dome in the western part of the continent reached 117 degrees. A town in British Columbia burned to the ground and temperatures in Europe are shattering records. Climate change is here and it's killing us. But it's not just the heat, it's the humidity. That's why scientists are studying wet bulb conditions or temperatures at which humans spontaneously die. In normal environmental conditions, when you sweat, that sweat evaporates off your body. That effectively cools your skin off. But in a high humidity environment, that sweat cannot evaporate properly. Because of that, it means that that sweat stays on your skin. What exactly are wet bulb conditions? And when do we need to start worrying about them? Can we do anything to stop them? People already dying? Here to answer these questions and more is motherboard intern Audrey Carlton, who's been covering this for the site. I'm Matthew Galt, in for Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Audrey, thank you so much for coming onto the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, so what exactly are wet bulb conditions?
1: Yeah, so I like to think of this um, in sort of short, simple form as the point at which heat and humidity converge so that sweating um, as a human sort of cooling function basically doesn't work anymore. So when temperatures get super hot outside, um, our body needs to sweat in order to release heat energy. Um, And so our sweat glands release moisture. They cover the surface of the skin. Um, And usually if there is enough room in the atmosphere um, for more humidity, they can evaporate off and that water, that moisture just goes into the atmosphere. But when it's so humid that the atmosphere can't really take up any moisture or there's not, you know, a strong gradient between um, the moisture of your skin and the moisture of the atmosphere and they're basically sort of the same moisture level... Your sweat doesn't go anywhere. Think about what happens when you, um, for example, go into a a steam room. You will be sweating. You will be very hot, but that sweat won't really go anywhere because it's so steamy um, and there's so much humidity in there. And you'll just kind of overheat and you'll get to a point where you're like, I'm out. That's essentially what wet bulb conditions are. So, you know, it's so humid that you sweat and it just kind of stays on the body and keeps heating up and heating up. And overheating you till the point that your body basically starts to shut down.
0: So the name is very evocative. Wet bulb. Where does that come from?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So this uh, condition, wet bulbs conditions, were actually sort of discovered by testing a thermometer with a wet towel wrapped around it. And it is sort of used to describe um, how the air around a wet thermometer cools as um, that water evaporates. But it's more often and nowadays more commonly used to describe atmospheric conditions.
0: All right, so this is happening right now, right? Where are some of the places that it's happening?
1: Yeah, so the, the researchers behind the study that I looked at for this one particular article Um, They tested 7,000-plus weather stations across the world from the years 1979 to 2017, and they found instances of wet bulb temperatures uh, clustered in places like South Asia and the coastal Middle East and the southwest coast of North America. And these are conditions mostly where it's uh, basically unsurvivable or at the upper, what they call the upper survivability threshold for humans. Um which is around 35 degrees Celsius uh, wet bulb. So that's heat and humidity. There are other places that are getting there. Um, they made this beautiful map that sort of shows the gradient by colors of places where wet bulb temperatures are, you know, in the high 20s uh, Celsius degrees, in the low 30s. Places around Mexico, northern Australia, and the southeast coast of the U.S. are coming close. And I think with climate change, we can expect them to get there more, more often in the near future. But, um, you know, even in some of those places like South Asia and the Middle East, um, that are experiencing these, it's really only one to two hours. It's not kind of a constant, but that's all it really takes for the body to break down. It doesn't take super long if you're in these conditions where your sweating doesn't go anywhere and you overheat, doesn't take long for the body to start to shut down. So even that short amount of time is pretty dangerous.
0: So, we, we know that humidity plays a big factor in all of this, but are there other factors? Is there other stuff that we need to worry about?
1: Yeah, so humidity is kind of the main thing, Um, but sun and wind are also factored into this. And ironically, the researchers that I talked to said some of the places that you would think of when you think of super hot, super humid um, places in the rainforest, places around the equator, are actually not as susceptible to this as places like the desert. So it's sort of counterintuitive. Um, The rainforest and the tropics and the equators, they... Um, have sort of a valve in the form of rainstorms and thunderstorms. so when it gets too humid, that gets released. But in places like the desert, where there isn't as many there aren't as many thunderstorms that it's that, just not there, that valve isn't there it's it it can be pretty dangerous if you encounter these conditions there.
0: So how many people do we know how many people have already died from this?
1: It's really hard to put a number on this. I mean, we know, at least this year, there have been hundreds of deaths um, related to heat conditions in uh, the Northwest alone because of this heat dome. But it's really hard to kind of put a number on any, um, you know, any specific one condition. But the researchers that I spoke to did tell me that, you know, as we're looking at wet bulb conditions in the future and preparing for them, not every community is going to experience this the same way. So migrant workers, people who don't have access to air conditioning, um, people who uh, have to spend long periods of time outside, maybe farm workers or unhoused people who can't access cooling centers are going to be at a far greater risk of this than somebody who has access to pretty constant AC.
0: All right. So you looked at one specific, this is a bigger problem, but you looked at one specific study for this story. So can you tell me about that study and who you talked to?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the one study that I looked at was published last year, uh, and it's called The Emergence of Heat and Humidity Too Severe for Human Tolerance, which is a pretty alarming title. I talked to one of the main authors on that study, a guy named Bradley Horton, who teaches at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And he also works at NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in their Consortium for Climate Risk in the Northeast. Um, And he, you know, told me a lot of different things about wet bulb, but mainly that, you know, or at least one of the key takeaways for me was that this, these these conditions can really kind of come for anyone and it doesn't take too long for for that to happen so even healthy people people who don't have any pre-existing conditions who are wearing light clothing and sitting in the shade um, can start to see their bodily functions uh, shut down when they when they overheat because of wet bulb conditions um, so it's you know really kind of a dangerous thing and it doesn't it doesn't um, discriminate based on whether you're healthy or not
0: Yeah, it really struck me, The just one to two hours, right? That's kind of all it takes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And are there, I mean, obviously being outside in the humid heat is a warning sign, but are there other like physiological warning signs a person should be looking for to know that they need to get themselves somewhere cool?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I would say, I think just pay attention to how much you're sweating. I mean, I think that's the main thing. I think you might start to... Feel kind of classic signs of heat stroke like headache or nausea, but I would say paying attention to how much you're sweating and whether that sweat is going anywhere is a really um, is a really good way to sort of monitor that.
0: Scientists have been studying this for some time, right? So I know this is something that they thought was they they knew was going to be a problem down the line, but the the, the it's coming fast. Um, so how soon is this going to be a problem in? a widespread problem in America and also the rest of the world.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that, you know, as you said, scientists thought that this was going to, most of the models, at least the models that were referenced in this study that I looked at, thought that this was going to be a problem in sort of the mid 21st century. So by 2050 or so, um, we're already seeing that these conditions are here. And I would say maybe in the next 10, 20 years, um, we might start to see them more often throughout Throughout the Earth, um, especially in those places that I mentioned that are in that kind of up there zone, but not quite there, that's where I would say uh, you know folks should start to get a little bit concerned. Um, and just because you know those conditions are not fully like unsurvivable wet bulb conditions. There's a physiological aspect and a psychological aspect. It's still extremely uncomfortable to be in a super humid, hot environment in, you know, Florida or parts of the Southeast U.S. that are kind of on the verge of experiencing these pretty soon. So, you know, people are going to start cranking up their ACs in any in any sort of wet bulb condition, even, even one that's not quite an unsurvivable one, um, which I think to me is a sign That we really need to be, like, securing our grids because if air conditioning is sort of the one band-aid for this uh, or the one sort of adaptability kind of tactic that people have against this is just getting inside. And, you know, we've already seen parts of the U.S. I've reported on Texas and places in California where outages have happened. Uh, because of too many people turning on their AC because of the heat. Uh, it's it's not a great sign that that's the one sort of adaptability thing that we have uh, to, to beat this, and it's not fully working.
0: So is there nothing else besides just AC?
1: So getting getting inside, getting away from humidity and into an environment where you can you can release some of that sweat is definitely the main thing. The researchers and the folks that I've you know seen sort of talking about this have also talked about having a standard as sort of a longer term thing, a standardized kind of metric that people know. Um, so sort of like how we're seeing more and more weather stations issuing like air quality indices or regular humidity indices. The researchers have that you know I've I've read talking about this and spoken to say that there needs to be a wet bulb temperature that everybody understands, okay, it's too dangerous to go outside for you today. Um, and just kind of helping people understand that. So they don't decide to like go for a long run in the middle of the heat, uh, or in the middle of wet bulb conditions, or they don't decide to, um, you know, or, uh, you know, workplaces don't have their employees out in um, these conditions for long periods of time. Um, The same way, you know, it might be unsafe to go out and pick, not that this doesn't happen, but to go out and pick vegetables in the middle of crazy forest fires when the air quality index is just like completely through the roof. It should sort of be the same thing with wet bulb temperatures and having a standardized measurement for that, that all of society kind of understands is a step towards getting there.
0: It seems as if um, going inside, cranking up the AC, taxing the power grid is something that exacerbates um, climate change in some ways. And that is also the one thing, one of the only things that we can do to avoid death by going outside. that has been brought about by, in part, climate change.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that is exactly the the fundamental problem I think that we are seeing this summer is – that we have a changing climate and we um, don't have, you know, the grid capacity to necessarily handle it. And it's just sort of a feedback loop that the worse it gets, the more we need to rely on these things, which will make the situation worse. I think a lot of people are saying that this is going to, that wet bulb conditions will be one of many things that spur on climate migration. And I was actually just reading a report this morning about places in the Midwest sort of being eyed as... um, new kind of urban hubs for people who are already deciding to leave the West Coast. Um, Duluth, Minnesota, I, I read a report about that being a, a main hub because it's close to Lake Superior and, um, you know, is sort of a relatively interesting, artsy kind of place. They call themselves the San Francisco of the North. Um, but, you know, I think folks are saying that we have to be prepared for climate migration across much of the U.S. for many reasons, and this is absolutely going to be one of them. So, you know, I saw a long Twitter thread about wet bulb conditions and the user who was writing about it was saying that we have to be voting in a way that makes, uh, you know, our towns kind of prepared for that eventuality. If you live somewhere that could be a place that accepts climate refugees, make sure that you vote, you know, people who are open to that into office and um, just sort of generally preparing for that eventuality, I think is important.
0: All right. So we just came off this 4th of July weekend, uh, I live in the South, in the Southeast, where um, I can attest that this summer has been very humid and miserable, and I have not gone outside a whole lot. And, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic, and it feels like people increasingly want to go outside, but we're now increasingly living in a world where it's inhospitable outside of our front door. What do you think is going to happen to U.S. culture because of this? We have to spend two seasons now indoors almost.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Um, I don't know if there is much of an answer to that other than staying inside more. I mean, I think we could see some of our celebrations adapted for indoors. I think the pandemic tested a lot of our ability to uphold some of our traditions in a non-traditional way. So things like Fourth of July celebrations could change. We already saw in the Southwest, there were parts of Nevada, parts of Utah that were banning fireworks for example because of drought conditions. So um you know, I think climate change is coming for a lot of a lot of those uh habits and traditions and uh, cele- celebratory things that we hold dear and we're just going to have to figure out a way to find, find new traditions. But yeah, I think a lot of people really value, I, for example, in New York value living in a four season locale and, um, you know, with winter and summer, both becoming kind of untenable outside. It's that kind of calls that into question.
0: Audrey Carlton. Thank you so much for joining us. Her most recent piece on this at motherboard is scientists studying temperature at which humans spontaneously die with increasing
1: urgency. Thank you so much for having me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
0: everyone i'm matthew galt and this is cypher the part of cyber where we decipher the week's biggest tech news i am joined this week by motherboard editor-in-chief jason kebler hello sir
2: hey what's up coming to you from uh, an undisclosed location near the white house to talk about the executive order yes uh so that's why i sound a little weird
0: so yeah we are dedicating all of cypher to one story this week because it's a big one the Joe Biden's executive order on promoting competition in the American economy, which is uh, a mouthful and it's huge. It's 72 separate initiatives. Um, And Jason, I remember in Slack when, when you brought this to everyone's attention, you called it the motherboard executive order.
2: Yeah, I did. (laughs) And to be clear, um, I'm not taking credit for, uh, for this executive order, although we are cited in parts of it, which is really exciting and we'll get to, but Uh, This executive order really touches on a lot of the priorities of Motherboard over the last six to seven years, really as long as I've worked here, which is really exciting to see and why we wanted to do a whole cipher on it, because it covers everything from antitrust and sort of like big business mergers and things like this to right to repair, to net neutrality, to uh, like fostering competition in uh, like for, for small businesses, it's like, there's a lot to it. All
0: right. Well, let's, let's jump into it with the, with my favorite bit and just because it's the beat that I've been working while I've been here for so long, uh, right to repair what's in here about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is the really exciting part for me because, you know, you and I have been covering this for a really long time. Just a quick reminder, right to repair is this idea that you should be able to fix the things that you own. Um, and that, Big companies have increasingly over the last decade sort of uh, formed like repair monopolies over the devices that they create through a series of software locks, restricting parts access, very restrictive end user license agreements and things like this. And so there's all these state level initiatives that would restrict companies from having these software locks and would require them to sell replacement parts and guides and things like this to the general public. Uh, and none of those have passed yet, but rights to repair rules are included in this executive order, which is huge. Um, basically the Biden administration directed the FTC to create rules that would prevent companies from anti-competitive uh, policies that restrict repair. And we initially thought that this was only going to apply to tractors because when Jen Psaki, the press secretary, announced it, that's what she said. But then when a fact sheet came out, it it seems as though it's going to apply to all consumer electronics, including phones, including computers, including appliances, things like this. And so I actually talked to a White House official earlier this week about how this is going to be implemented because it's the part of the executive order we're most excited about and essentially the FTC has been studying right to repair for a while they did this big report called nixing the fix uh, and came to the conclusion that there are repair monopolies and there are anti-competitive practices implemented by these big companies and so the FTC is going to go through a rulemaking process which is so the same sort of thing that we've seen from like net neutrality like that's that's what a rulemaking is it's when a it, it, executive uh, department or branch you know, asks the public for comment and then creates rules and then implements the rules and then, in theory, enforces the rules. And so the Biden White House has directed the FTC to create these rules. The FTC seems pretty well-placed to do it, considering that they have done this nixing the fix report. And the authority that they believe they can use is one that uh, prevents anti-competitive practices, which is, uh, the FTC has sort of broad authority to make rules around that. Uh, the Biden white house also believes that the Sherman antitrust act, uh, which is a very old law that, you know, is kind of, it's an 1890 law that is, uh, the foundation of like antitrust legislation in the United States, which is not very strong anymore as we've seen over the last couple of decades. Um, they believe that under that law, they also have the authority to enforce right to repair rules. And so this is really exciting. Uh, I think right to repair advocates are still pushing for legislation because as we know, executive orders can come and go with new presidents. It's like Biden repealed all of Trump's executive orders for the most part. Trump repealed all of Obama's for the most part. And like every president has just been signing like a million executive orders as, as sort of, the end around Congress, because Congress doesn't get anything done anymore. But this is sort of the the broad strokes of what the, the Biden executive order says on right to repair.
0: Just a quick follow up question. How do you think this is going to affect the fights in the local legislations because the local legislators because we've got, you know, uh, New York, it's passed the Senate still needs to go through the assembly you know, various other states. They're, you know, they're looking at similar legislation. Do you think this will help it hinder it?
2: I mean, I think that it helps it in the sense that this is now a, an issue that has the explicit backing of the White House, and especially in Democrat-controlled states, like there's the possibility that you know they they can push for for legislation. I think that there's also the potential for it to hurt it in the sense that we've seen in the past, like John Deere signed a memorandum of understanding. Uh, that gave like a very watered down version of right to repair to farmers in California and, and actually farmers in the entire United States. And then used that agreement to argue that right to repair laws weren't necessary because they gave farmers this right. And then they didn't actually like implement it. So um, it's it was kind of like Lucy with the football, like, you know, Promise something, don't give it, and then use that promise to fight against legislation. And that brings up an important point, which is that I think this is a huge deal, uh, obviously, but the rulemaking process is one that is highly influenced by corporations, like just as a rule. Um, the public comment period is nominally for the public to say, hey, we support this rule or we don't support this rule. But as we saw with Net neutrality and a few other um, like FCC rulemaking processes, which I used to report on a lot. Uh, I, I spoke to some academics and they're like, the public comments don't matter, like from the general public. The comments that matter are the ones from corporations that are written by lawyers that are like thousands of pages long in some cases. And so we've seen companies fight really hard against right to repair legislation. And I think that they will try to water this down as hard as they can in the rulemaking process. And I wouldn't be surprised to see lawsuits as well um, after it's implemented just to to either hold it up or to say, um, you know, this is unconstitutional in some way, shape or form. Uh, I don't know what the grounds would be, but with net neutrality, like after that was initially implemented, every telecom sued. And I would kind of expect the same here. Um, one more very quick thing. The executive order also directs the Department of Defense to consider repair policies of contractors when they're procuring devices and procuring weapons and things like this. And that is another way that uh, the White House believes they can sort of uh, force rights to repair policies without using the FTC. And that that. I think that's an overlooked part of this executive order, but it's a really interesting one.
0: Well, yeah, because the they've been going back to the boneyard and resurrecting these old B fifty twos because they can't keep because they can't keep some of their planes in the air. Anyway, that's a whole separate thing. Yeah, the Pentagon can't, can't repair
2: its tanks and planes and things like this, which is crazy. Yeah, you but, gotta buy uh, yeah. you gotta
0: buy a new one. You gotta you, <laughs> you know. Um, now I'm thinking about defense dod projects like iphones and it's messing with my brain um all right so (laughs) another thing you mentioned in all of that is uh net neutrality speaking of net neutrality are we getting net neutrality back too as part of this executive order
2: this is a very interesting one because i think probably as most people who listen to cyber know um the obama fcc implemented net neutrality which is the idea that all internet traffic should be treated the same that you can't charge extra uh you know for netflix or or whatever like kind of this broad set of rules that we've gone over like ad nauseum um most people believe net neutrality is a core principle like required for a free and open internet and then trump comes in appoints a jeep or rather Ajit Pai was uh, appointed by Obama, but elevated to chairman under Trump uh, and strips the net neutrality rules. And for the last four and a half years, five years, we have not had net neutrality. The executive order directs the FCC to reinstate those rules, which on its face is great, But the important thing here is the FCC is made up of five commissioners. In theory, there should be three Democrats and two Republicans. It's like the the party that has the presidency has more commissioners and then can create rules according to that party's interests. So right now, there's actually a 2-2 deadlock in the FCC, uh, two Republicans, two Democrats, and the Biden White House has not appointed a fifth FCC chairperson or commissioner rather. And so the FCC currently can't re-implement net neutrality until Biden appoints another FCC commissioner who's confirmed by the Senate. So this is a big hang up. um, And it's something that the Biden White House needs to fix if we want to get net neutrality back.
0: So what have been the consequences in the past few years of not having it?
2: Well, Ajit Pai would say that there's no consequences, but I think what we've seen is just like an incredibly deregulated industry. Net neutrality isn't specifically tied to like broadband access and rollout and competition, but it also kind of is because it just affects big telecom, which is and big telecom investment and and that sort of thing. And the changing of rules all the time means that big telecom is not going to invest in broadband infrastructure if the rules change constantly and the other thing is we've seen things like zero rating which is the idea that like we have all these data caps for example like home internet data caps mobile broadband data caps and zero rating is the idea that you can exempt certain types of data from those data caps which seems like okay in theory. Like I believe T-Mobile for a while was giving people free Netflix for, for signing up to T-Mobile or switching to T-Mobile. So that meant that, you know, if your data cap was two gigabytes per month, uh, any data consumed uh, by like l- watching Netflix wouldn't count for that. And under the net neutrality rules, that would be illegal. And that sounds like, hey, that's annoying. I want free Netflix. But when you think about competition and sort of how the internet is supposed to work, treating different types of data differently is very unfair. It's like that gives Netflix a huge advantage in, in the streaming space uh, and prevents you know, competition and startups from fighting against Netflix because uh, you know, if the same show is available on Netflix and another platform, but you're going to hit a data cap when you watch it on the other platform, but not on Netflix, like that's a very bad thing. I think uh, an international example of this is Facebook had this program called Free Basics that it rolled out all over the world where you could access Facebook for free, but you couldn't access other parts of the internet for free. And so that obviously has led to incredible harm because it has cr- it has made Facebook the de facto internet for a lot of different countries and, uh, you know, has allowed Facebook to just amass like incredible amounts of power. And so that's, that's like, in my mind, the biggest harm of not having these rules over the last few years. And I think it would be a very good thing to, to re them
0: yeah i think that um people had this misconception about net neutrality that it was going to create very clear like lanes of internet um and it was never yeah like
2: fast lane slow lane like this site loads faster this site loads slower
0: yeah and it's you know it's still possible that that kind of thing could happen but i think like the the facebook example is really a good one uh the t mobile example is a really good one because it, it's more it's a little bit more subtle and more pernicious i think um,
2: yeah, and it's also like, uh, I think that the the fight, because uh, there's a big net neutrality fight a few years ago, and the, the big fight was like, the big telecom is going to take things away from you. But what they did instead was like, give you free things to make it seem as though it's not so bad. But in giving you free things, they are like, inherently taking things away from you. Because we know, and we've reported like, ad nauseum, that data caps are arbitrary, like, the tubes don't get clogged, you know? (laughs) Um, And so um, they've been able to just make a killing on these data caps that, uh, that are completely arbitrary. And then they exempt certain things from these data caps and they call it like a free thing that they're giving you. All right. So the 72
0: initiatives in this thing, um, other than net neutrality and right to repair, which are the biggies, are there other, is there other stuff going
2: on here that we need to be aware of? I think there's all sorts of really important things, uh, all of which I know much less about than net neutrality and rights for repair, but just like to quickly run through some things. There's like, there's privacy rules related to big tech and social media. Um, The way that the executive order is written is it's very vague. And so I'm not sure exactly what the implications of that are going to be. There's a lot in here about antitrust in general. Um, So, you know, we could see some action against you know Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, et cetera. I'm not sure what that's gonna look like. There's also just like things that are going to affect the average person, but I don't know how in terms of things like putting limits on sort of big ag like big agriculture, um, making like American farming more competitive um things like. Uh, crack down on the fees of like big shipping companies and things like this, like ocean tankers, like the ever given that got stuck. I'm not sure how that's going to affect people either, but I think it it will have some sort of impact on just like making American businesses more competitive. Like that's at least the intent here. And then the other thing that there's things in here, like airlines need to more clearly tell you if they're going to uh, be charging you for baggage and things like this. So there's a lot of like consumer friendly consumer forward, small business forward things in here. Um, how and when and how effectively they're implemented and enforced is like remains to be seen. but this is like really a very interesting um, a very interesting executive order. Oh, and the last thing is there's a call in here to pass the pro act, which is, uh, I forget what it stands for, but it's a pro labor act that would make uh unionizing much easier and prevent some of the anti union things that that big companies do to union bust and so there's like that needs legislation to pass, but there are some things around the edges that this executive order does that are pro labor, which is also very exciting,
0: yeah, and if we can zoom out as kind of a way of wrapping this up, this is just one piece of The larger framework of Joe Biden kind of getting more invested, getting the executive branch more invested in the FCC and the FTC and looking at regulating some of these companies that have come to have a large amount of power in our daily lives, right?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And we see this with like the uh, appointment of Lena Khan as the FTC chair, who is going to be implementing a lot of these rules. Uh, she is an academic who has written extensively about like Amazon's monopoly and how that is very bad for the average person and small businesses, which is, you know, we've been beating that drum for a really long time. I You know, when I talk to that White House official, I don't want to just like parrot their talking points, but I, I do think that This aligns with kind of what I thought of the executive order, which is so often legislation and rulemaking is designed to either deregulate things or make like they're kind of regulations written for and by big business to like expand their power. This executive order in particular is designed to make a material change in the average person's life. And I think I'll just like to, to use right to repair as another, as an example, yet again, um, you know, every time we write about right to repair, people are like this, this is popular. Like I want this, I need this. It affects my life. Like I went to go get my iPhone fixed and it costs like $400 and I took it around the corner and the guy was like, yeah, I can fix it for 49 bucks. Like, I don't understand. Um, like this is something that people are frustrated by like a lot of these things that we're talking about people are like frustrated by airline baggage taxes and things like this and so the fact that this is written to help average people i think is smart and it's an approach that we haven't really seen from a president in a very very long time which is good jason kebler The
0: site is Motherboard, where you can read about all of these wonderful things. I don't know. I know that's a terrible outro. Uh, Jason, thank you so much. Jason, thank (sighs) you so much for coming on and walking us through this executive order.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you.